Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. If you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get ad-free versions of every episode of the podcast. Right now, you can find a bonus episode about what we watch during our month-long hiatus with more episodes to come. You can find it all at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Genevieve Kosky. And Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson could not be with us this week due to food poisoning after eating a bad batch of Limbas. Sorry. I hope you feel better soon. Joining us instead is our returning guest, Roxana Haddadi. Roxana, welcome back and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So we're talking about a big chunk of J.R.R. Tolkien-inspired entertainment this week. Before we do, I was wondering where everyone else first encountered Tolkien. What was your Tolkien entry point? For me, it was The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the Hobbit was incredible. From uh, that was a book I read when I was a kid, and I, I just I loved flipping back and forth to the map. Like the map was so exciting to kind of just see where uh, you know, where the journey was going. Then I tried to read Lord of the Rings proper, and I was just I couldn't do it. It was too dense, too dense for <laughs> little me. But uh, the Hobbit, the Hobbit was a key experience for me as a young reader. Yeah, if I had to venture a guess, I'd say that all of us probably encountered The Hobbit as younger folk, uh, and then uh, where we went afterwards may have diverged, or maybe not. Roxana? Yeah, Genevieve, you would be incorrect. Oh, please tell me more. <laughs> uh, I think I saw the Bakshi Lord of the Rings first. Ah. Like, I have, like, I have some memory of watching that. I think I watched that, like maybe in fourth or fifth grade with my brother, who is three years older than me. So I think we watched it together and then I saw Jackson's movies, and then I read the Lord of the Rings books, and then in like college I read The Hobbit as like a little treat. I like <laughs> went entirely backward. <laughs> but yeah, it was a good time. I love that though. And you, now you're like a dedicated, devoted fan, right? So maybe yeah, like maybe too much. Although I, yes and no, right? Because like to be like a to be like a super dedicated fan, you have to do what we're doing now, which is talk about like the appendices and the Cimmerillion and like all the gathered texts. I would say I'm like a passionate movie defender 
interested TV watcher and, you know, sometimes I audible it up. Sometimes I listen to the audiobooks. <laughs> Let's get wild with it. Do they sing the songs on the audiobooks or is they it just... They do. Okay. No. Okay. Andy, Sir- Andy Circus like, sings all the songs. It's a good time. This is sounding appealing. Yeah, I think, I think like you, I think I have this, like, hazy memory of watching part of the Bakshi movie on cable when I was like sick and like falling asleep mm-hmm. and not really knowing what was going on. But yeah, I read I read The Hobbit and then I read Lord of the Rings and this is like sixth grade. I was like, I was really, really was my big Tolkien How precocious. I'll tell you that. Well, the, the, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah, the, I don't the know. Bakshi, it cuts to the chase pretty well. The other beginning. Yeah, <laughs> it takes care of the exposition a lot faster than the Peter Jackson, but I don't want yeah. to get result. Yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> we, we should probably actually just like get in into the Tolkien selection we are wanting to talk about uh, today, Genevieve. Can you share that information with us? (laughs) Sure. As already teased, Prime Video recently launched one of the most ambitious series of the streaming era with a title whose length suggested scope, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Set in what Tolkien called the Second Age of Middle-earth, it takes place thousands of years before the events of The Lord of the Rings and concerns the forging of the troublesome rings at the center of his best-known work. After watching a few episodes, we thought it would be illuminating to pair it with the 2001 film The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of three Lord of the Rings adaptations directed by Peter Jackson. Expect plenty of elves, dwarves, hobbits, and harfoots in both episodes, but we'll begin with what, in the grand scheme of Tolkien's creation, was the beginning of the end of Middle-Earth's history, then leap back in time to the new TV series. Yes, that's a little confusing. We'll explain it all after the break. It's a gift. Let us use it against him. You cannot wield it. None of us can. The ring must be destroyed. It was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. I know what I must do, but I'm afraid to do it. One does not simply walk into Mordor. There is no other way. The Lord of the Rings was always a story too big to be contained in one novel, even before J.R.R. Tolkien's publishers insisted he break up his fantasy epic into three separate books when it was published in 1954. A sequel to his popular 1937 novel, The Hobbit, which concerned the adventures of Bilbo Baggins, some dwarves, a dragon, and a magic ring, The Lord of the Rings represented just a sliver of the history of Middle-earth. The rest was in Tolkien's head and his notebooks and in the pieces he'd written for what would eventually be compiled posthumously as the Silmarillion, a sweeping history of Middle-earth from its creation through the end of its Third Age. The Lord of the Rings was bigger than a novel in other ways, too. It featured maps and illustrations that lent an added reality to Middle-earth. It inspired songs performed by everyone from Led Zeppelin to Leonard Nimoy. It prompted the counterculture fans who latched onto the book in the 1960s to make buttons and graffiti reading, spoiler warning, Frodo lives. And if it didn't invent the high fantasy genre, it came to define it. The Lord of the Rings also largely defied attempts to adapt it into a movie, or at least a live action movie. We don't really have the time or energy to talk that much about Ralph Bakshi's 1978 film or the Rankin-Bass TV movies. Not only would a film version have to compete with the imaginations of Tolkien's readers, it would have to find a way to create the sweeping world of Middle-earth and all of its inhabitants. It would need a creator who got Tolkien's vision and had the visual and technological wizardry to bring that vision to the screen. 
Enter Peter Jackson, or more specifically, Enter Jackson and a creative team that included his longtime writing partner, Fran Walsh, and co-writer Philippa Boyens, and the technicians at Weta Workshop. The team approached the project with a combination of respect for Tolkien's story and his irony-free approach to storytelling, old-fashioned camera trickery and movie magic, and cutting-edge digital effects capable of bringing fantastic creatures to life and simulating the clashes of great armies. A lot could have gone wrong, but watching the resulting films, it's hard not to marvel with all that went right. That's evident in the earliest scenes of The Fellowship of the Ring. The wizard Gandalf, played by Ian McKellen, arrives in a shire that feels as quaint and lived in as the place described by Tolkien. And it's just as evident in The Fellowship of the Ring's final moments, when the film has taken the once lighthearted hero Frodo Baggins and its companions to darker terrain, both literally and figuratively. Frodo ends the film burdened with a horrible weight, given no less a task than saving the world from eternal darkness. In between, Fellowship faithfully squeezes as much of Tolkien's narrative into the film as a digestible running time will allow, spare a moment of pity for poor Tom Bombadil, while bringing many of his fantastic creations to life. But it's also respectful of the themes driving Tolkien's work, a sense of how temptation can undo even those with the best intentions, and that doing good means waging a constant battle with the temptation and forces of corruption. And maybe that's the real secret to adapting Tolkien, beyond the relatively simple task of creating a believable fantasy world. Realizing that for its creator, Middle-earth wasn't all that far off a place after all, but it's a place filled with familiar characters, even if they sometimes had pointy ears and hairy feet. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. I've offered a brief synopsis of my take on, on this film, why this film works and its sequels work as well. What's yours or, or am I wrong? Does anyone not like this movie? I, who, I mean, who would? Who could not like it? Like, please, like, get out of my life. Like, I want nothing to do with you ever again. Yeah, I was. I hadn't revisited uh, Fellowship in probably mm, at least 15, maybe two closer to 20 years. So I was Whoa. like going into this rewatch wow, thinking, Genevieve. I know, yeah, I we don't need to go into it. But <laughs> but so I, I was I was kind of afraid that I would come into this rewatch and have a oh, this isn't as good as I remember. Oh, this is mm. kind of cornier than I remembered. Nope, none of that. It, it like held up phenomenally. I'm mm. like, why am I not rewatching this movie every year? Like my husband is always bugging me to do and I always say no. It's phenomenal. It really is. I, 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 you know, I unfortunately have been around long enough to where I was a critic at the time. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and I think, at the, you know, I appreciated this film at the time, for sure. Like everybody else, it was it was an acclaimed film and it was also a hit. But I feel like when you watch it now and consider where franchises are where blockbusters are where effects are where acting in these types of movies like where the writing like you know the level of expressiveness like this is so much better than all of that stuff like it is so it's in this class above and you just i just it just 
it's exhilarating. It's exhilarating. The way, in a way humor it, is sorry, but the way you just like you talking about it in relation to modern fantasies, like I was so taken with how humor is integrated into this film, and it's it doesn't have that feeling of like someone came in and wrote some jokes to punch it up. You know, like it feels right. very organic and in the performances, and to a certain extent in the source material. No, I mean it. No, it's spirited. It's a real. It's a real sincere adventure. Uh, and when it is funny, it is. Yeah, you know, it does feel organic. It doesn't feel jokey doesn't feel like it's been punched up in a, a writer's room and i just you know i feel like the mix of practical and digital effects is again there's nothing that good now <laughs> not even close and yeah. again, you know it, it's it's a tragedy really that i mean like we're supposed to have all we're supposed to be moving forward on all, all of this stuff and and it feels like we're taking a big step back on every single aspect of what makes this film really good so uh you know i, I loved seeing it again and i'm, I'm ready to charge forward into <laughs> into the two towers and uh yeah yeah Yeah. i definitely had that same urge like oh now i need to watch the next two movies but i can't do it until after this discussion because i will get confused i think in terms of the the effects i think to their credit i think i think the star wars sequels especially force awakens really did try to return to this mix of practical and digital with some success but you're right the people yeah And, and it's weird too because like you know we've seen these digital armies clashing on on fields of battle so many times since then but it just looks better here i and it maybe it's just a matter of just like you know the first it kind of made the deepest impression i don't know but to well, your other point you're making yeah. um you know i think there was like yeah this is really good but i think it took until the two towers like like oh wait they really know what they're doing <laughs> this is really going to be they're just really seeing this through as as, as the best way possible L- let me tell you why the digital effects are better Okay. It, because they're aestheticized. You know what I mean? It's not just a bunch of yeah. bunch of things clashing against each other. It's like it, it's thought through in a very graphically pleasing way. And so it, it really doesn't matter, you know, when you you know, one of the things one of the problems with these kind of big battles is that everything feels fairly weightless in a lot of these movies. Again, I feel like I'm subtweeting Marvel with all this stuff, but here it's like you remember a lot of the images. You remember, you know, because Peter Jackson sort of thought them through and you you think about an image like, you know, in this where the where, where the floodwaters are sort of raised and they become these these, you know, stallions or whatever that are sort of charging across the water. That's an all that's a digital effect, but it's also aestheticized in a very striking way. I mean, that's such a key point, and it's, I'm probably going to bring it up a, a million times. But like, this is an expressive film. This is a personal film. I mean, and you don't—that's what you want, and, and, and so rarely get on movies of of, a, of a, such a big scale because there's so much at stake, and and there's so many cooks in the kitchen. But like, this is this is this feels like this feels homemade in a way that early Peter Jackson films feel—the ones that cost no money, like like mm. you know. Be, like meet the feebles and bad taste and dead alive i mean this is this is somebody who has thought everything through and it it just makes all the difference in the world there's much less muppet sucks in murder in this one than in (laughs) much less unless you watch all the way to the end credits and then it's just like (laughs) hidden in there Uh, i also think the thing too is that like i feel like peter jackson knew that people were here for this story so we're not wasting time with like gigantic action sequences where you can't see 60 percent of what's happening right like action sequences exist there is like the cave troll and there is of course like all of the precursor where we see isildur taking the ring like all of that stuff is there but we're not spending so much time within it that you begin to question it right it's like you're here for the story you're here to understand 
the Shire and the Hobbits and Gandalf and Sauron and Sauron. Like, there's so many other more important things happening, and it's so well written that I think, you know, we go for very long stretches of time where you don't even consider, mm-hmm. like, oh, hey, I haven't seen a CGI thing for a while. Like, that's great. It's great that I have not seen a CGI thing for a while and that the story is well written enough that it can stand alone without that stuff. Yeah, I was I was struck by the the very same thing rewatching this because I think, you know, the two subsequent films, and I, I say this, again, having not revisited them recently, but at least my memory of them is that they are a lot more battle uh centric um than than this first one and you know you you as you say we do have the sort of opening narration background bit that gives us some cgi battle action but then it steps back to that first shot of the shire and i cried (laughs) so so my husband like, like like that transition is so it's just powerful like on a filmmaking level and it does like give you that feeling of you're starting a storybook you know there was a there was a prologue and now we're actually getting into the story and we're actually meeting characters and going to places and you know this is a a, a narrative it's not just like right into the smashy smashy and again having not revisited them i i would still venture to say that the next two movies are not as smashy smashy as i remember them so like Genevieve, to your point of opening a storybook, I mean, obviously the cinematography is doing like exceptional things here. New Zealand, I feel like this is my first, this was my first introduction to New Zealand. And I was like, oh, this this exists? Like, (laughs) okay, this is tight. Like, this is amazing. But it's such an exceptional use of natural places. And you get such a strong sense of power from the production design and from building these locations, actually like investing money and time and finding them. And something else that was really exciting to me is the camera work is like, I rewatch this probably like every six months or so, but I always forget how many close-ups there are. Like, I don't know why, but so much of fantasy, I just expect, like, these wide shots, especially in Lord of the Rings, where we talk about how beautiful the locations are. But there's so many close-ups of, like, Gandalf and Bilbo and Gandalf and Frodo and establishing who these characters are in that first, like, half hour to 45 minutes that gives us a strong sense of, like, I understand what motivates this person and I understand what they fear. And all of that is really economically done in a movie that is still what like three hours but tells so much story in three hours i mean i think that's what always astonishes me especially as we talk about the tv show is like i love tv obviously (laughs) but like what fellowship pulls off compared to like three episodes of tv is astonishing i also kept thinking about how well cast this film yes mm-hmm. is i mean it's just kind of perfectly cast and from ian mckellen just the right amount of of you know this weird mix of twinkle and and menace that he brings to to that uh, christopher lee i can't picture anyone else but sarah but but also like wood and aston it's just such an inspired choices like elijah wood you know has done many other things and it is very good but i mean boy was he born to play hobbit i mean just just those big expressive eyes you know but he's so he's got range as an actor too i mean he's he's just he's this this endearing little guy but it's also like just haunted and you know more and more as as the series goes on as well but uh but you know there's not really a bum note in the casting like i don't think i've never really been that into Orlando Bloom outside of this film 
and I'm not sure, like, you know, I'm not sure, you know, some of the other cast members are probably, this is their best moment. But it is their best moment. I mean, I, I think they, they are just, you know, slotted very well in, in, into these roles. You're not, make, you're not going to mention Viggo Mortensen? <laughs> yeah, of course. I am. We'll, 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 we'll give Roxana the honor. <laughs> I, what is there to say about Viggo? I mean, well, actually, I was talking to my partner about this, and I said that the three performances that stand out most to me upon rewatch are obviously Elijah, who brings, like, such a sense of innocence and determination that then curdles into something else. And like Ian McKellen's line deliveries are all really exciting. I mean, obviously people quote, you shall not pass because it's perfect and iconic, but all the other stuff, like all of his conversations with Bilbo and like to Keith's point of this sense of menace and like exhaustion once he realizes what's happening. But like, what's so interesting to me about Vigo's performance is what he doesn't do. It's very constrained in an interesting way when he's being Aragorn and being like weighed down by the weight of responsibility. And then to have that contrast with how he sells the physicality of this performance. Like, such it's, a good it's, fighter. <laughs> it's such a good like contrast. And I know that he, he replaced Stuart Townsend, right? Which like kudos i'm sorry stuart but like that was the right call <laughs> but like again vigo has been amazing in many things like eastern promises is probably still my favorite vigo but in terms of like someone who could lead me into battle like good job they nailed that 100 uh, percent. obviously nicholas cage would have been better casting no i actually don't agree with that you know, you know uh, as i say that as a fan but i, I can't really imagine anyone but vigo mortensen uh, uh playing this role Mm-mm. I mean, while we're talking about iconic performances, I, I do want to broach one that we we get very little of here, mm. but is central to this this movie franchise, which is Andy Serkis's mm-hmm. Gollum, and mm-hmm. and also very central to this film sort of legacy when it comes to CGI effects. Um, and, and the whole motion capture thing. Maybe we'll get into sort of like the, you know, how dividing this into three movies works, but Gollum's introduction and just like the taste we get of him here feels really, really smartly done in light of what comes next. Like if you had come screaming out of the gate with too much Gollum, like I think it would have consumed the movie. And it's a admirable show of restraint that they didn't show off that toy too much right right out of the gate. And that he's introduced with first a sense of disgust and then what we're left with is a sense of pity, mm-hmm. right? Because if we're treating Gandalf like the, as he is, like the leader of the fellowship morally and ethically and in terms of like what he's seen and what he knows can happen, I think often about Frodo being like Bilbo should have killed him. And, mm-hmm. you know, Gandalf's very sort of not wary, but just his sense of. Well, you don't you you can't say that. Like, who are you to make that choice? I mean, so much of Tolkien, right, is about like personal choice and free will and like whether you really have uh, agency in destiny and fate. But I think, you know, not showing us Gollum and then also saying, well, maybe you should not judge him before you understand what he went through was so smart, so smart. Just one of many intelligent character introduction things that this movie does. But Genevieve, when you started talking, I thought you were going to talk about Kate Blanchett. Oh. I feel like she has such an outsized like effect on these movies, despite being in them for what, maybe like 
10 minutes, 15 minutes total. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, per- and maybe this is just like a me thing or like when it when it hit me in my life and like what I knew of Cape Blanchett at that point, which was like not that much. Nothing. Uh, Same yeah. for me. Yeah. So obviously like the the scene where, you know, she turns into Dark Galadriel is like em- emblazoned in my memory. But like beyond that, she is like far from the top of the list of associations I, I have with this movie. And, and I an outlier there, Scott and Keith, or... And, no, I mean, it, but, but I do think it, it, she's really great in the moments that she, <laughs> yeah. that she does does have, and that's that's one of them, but also just sort of, like, the moment when she starts speaking to Frodo in her mind, like, you forget because she's lovely and ethereal and powerful, but you also forget she's really scary. I mean, she's yeah. a, really, a really scary character, and, like, you can see her taking the ring. I mean, you can see the temptation, you can see the impulse is real. It's not just like some sort of theoretical inner monologue that she's having. This is someone who's who's on the verge of taking that ring. We're not going to talk about Hugo Weaving as well. As <laughs> I was, was going to say, we're just like going to go down the list <laughs> I mean, like, one at a time. Like, I can't, we're not going to talk about this. And I, and I, and I also think like, think like yeah, I'm not going to tip my hand too much, but like casting is important. <laughs> In terms of, oh, Scott, <laughs> you know, I mean, like these are magnetic performers. Uh, you know, th- these are perfectly cast actors. Every single one is really thought through. Uh, you know, that you, you watch the film and you, you really—it's one of those films where you think, I, I wouldn't want to see anyone else in that role, except for somebody, except for Galandriel, uh, who's good in the new one, the new thing. But I'll get to that later. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know, but I mean, to go back to to kind of rewind quite a lot. I mean, I think there's just a sense of confidence here in the material on Jackson's part. It's just rather than think like I have to, I'm making this big movie. I have to have an action beat here. Uh, I can't let I can't let things go for too long. But without kind of rattling people's cages a little bit, I think his thought was like these books are pretty popular for a reason. And if I just have the faith that these, that the, that this world and that these characters are going to connect with movie audiences the same way that they have in books for as long as they have, then we're golden. And that's kind of what it, that feels like. I mean, you know, the thing I kind of like about it in terms of like the effects in, in the beginning is like, you're the first effects you really get beyond that prologue are, are just those like whimsical fireworks you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's just such a and that's like a that's a character moment you know and, and it's and it's a and it's a deployment of of effects that's that's kind of wondrous but also unusual and uh, you know and and so tied to the spirit of the shire and so tied to you know gandalf's you know warmth toward uh the inhabitants of, of that place and you know it, it's yes you know, so, so the effects that are there do work but again as, as we've said just having the patience to know that, that this is a long story to know that to know that people are going to be on board because they're on board with the with the books and then just and and just go for it and, and really kind of separate the movie too into this happens with the sequels really have kind of discrete sections you know i mean you just you really start to think of these of all three movies as having just oh this is the the minds of the of moria you know, bit. This is a part, and it's all going to be so vividly realized, and it's going to look different than everything else. And you're going to get there, and it's just, and it brings it brings little, uh, it brings a uh, uh, small uh, uh, Scott Tobias back to his room as a kid. You know, looking at the map again. You know, just like ah, oh, here we are in this completely different place. And uh, the film ha- has that same kind of magic to it. 
And I've always loved that we actually see the map. Mm-hmm. Like, I love that sort of, like, incorporation of what the book looks like and helping ground us and where we are. And I feel like, again, this goes back to Genevieve's point of, like, it being a storybook. Like, those are distinct chapters, right? It's like the Shire is a chapter. The Prancing Pony is a chapter. The first time in Rivendell. So, like, because you're moving through these locations and each of them are so distinctly realized and so different, you are sort of getting that sense of, movement along with these characters that feels physical and tangible and real and i mean subtweeting marvel is fine uh because i feel like we talk about how those movies lack texture all the time right so when you're actually dealing with these locations and sort of these places and the sense that people are actively moving within them i mean the movie that gives the movie power are you telling me this would not be as effective if it was filmed in a parking lot in atlanta uh, <laughs> yeah, I would say that that, that would not be as good. <laughs> yes. But I mean, and you know, like, obviously, we can say this about Marvel, but there have been like tons of I mean, Ready Player One, like I was thinking about mm, that as I yeah. was watching this movie. I mean, sort of all of these like gigantic, like, let's bring all of pop culture together. I mean, this movie has no interest in acknowledging other movies. <laughs> And I respect that. I mean, like, so much of the humor, like, as everyone has said, is not this sense of, like, oh, I'm, like, writing a joke in here that someone will recognize because it references something else. I mean, the humor is just that the hobbits are adorable and hungry all the time. And who who has not, who has not related to that? <laughs> Earlier, Roxana, when you were talking about, like, all the close-ups and how effective mm-hmm. they are, I was thinking how that is, like, very much linked to the film's practical effects because so much of that is between characters of very different sizes you know and yes. the, and uh this this film manages that very well through a variety of mostly practical filmmaking uh, uh i don't even want to call them effects because a lot of it is just stand-in so techniques i guess yeah um and the close-ups are a part of that. You know, if you're only if you're focusing in on one person, you don't have to focus on the differently sized person, <laughs> you know, sharing a frame with them. But it's effective, like on a character level, the same way that, you know, these real locations, these real New Zealand locations that aren't CGI or very maybe minimally CGI uh, manipulated, like they bring that, that added layer of of pleasure to this, you, you know, and, and, and make this place feel real and exciting to be in. So while acknowledging that the, you know, computer effects in these films are revolutionary and well done and not overboard, the commitment to practical effects, I think, really pays off on a, I guess, story level or a narrative level and character level. And some of like the shots that stick out most in my mind are the ones that play with that sense of like size and scale. Like, of course, the hobbits. Frodo throwing from himself. The oh, I was going to say Frodo <clears throat> throwing himself at Gandalf, like right at the very yes, beginning. One that's of my a favorite. great one. <laughs> yeah, like that one's wonderful. I mean, Gandalf in Bilbo's house, when he's like frightening Bilbo to get him to release the ring and like he summons darkness and like makes himself seem larger. That's a great one. Or like the hobbits hiding from the Nazgul under like the tree root. Mm-hmm. And then I have, I have always loved the insects like being afraid of the Nazgul, these like gigantic mm-hmm. spiders and centipedes like fleeing. Uh, so just like so much of that is just accomplished through 
extremely thoughtful composition and framing and like these moments that just stick out to me. I'm also always surprised by how much dialogue I remember, but it's just, it's so well-written and so naturalistic in a certain way that it just sticks in my brain. With regard to effects, I think uh, we, we, we here on the next picture show, I mean, we just talked about the thief of Baghdad not long ago. We have, mm-hmm. we have a certain amount of affection for, Older effects in movies, so effects that were the that, that involved a lot of imagination. You might you might be able to sort of see the strings a, a bit, but what they have, is, of course, is that you know handmade quality. You know, you, the, the thumbprints of their creators are evident in a way that that that's kind of tactile and imaginative, and you kind of appreciate it on that scale. And you know, that's something that we don't think is possible with digital like you know because because it can be perfected you can create entire worlds digitally and uh and they can be these cold sort of computerized images but i feel like that that's the thing with this movie it just has like that continuity between those two types of effects it it comes from a certain uh, again a a level of expression of a a personal touch um you know is it for insofar as digital effects can have you know a thumbprint uh it can and can feel you know expressive and auteurist or whatever directorial like this has that in a way that in a way that so few films do i don't know if we want to make any kind of generalizations about the era but this was the fifth highest grossing film in 2001 and of those five films uh, one is the other the number one is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Number two is Shrek. It's a it's a season of fantasy. Like what were hmm. what were we so hungry for fantasy for? I mean, obviously 2001, 9 11, but I think you know this feels like this was know, after two, that. This was this, this was, was post 9 11. Yes, this right. One. But this is all you know, conceived before, and and it's all like I, I wouldn't make I'd draw a direct connection there. Like you know, we all want, want to escape into fantasy, but there's something you know. It seems like you know there was a there was a current there. We wanted magic and wizards and 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 whatnot. I mean, I I would say that it was nine eleven. Yeah, maybe. Okay, all right. I, I, it felt like too easy, but but yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I would say that it was that. I mean, this was like a holiday movie, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. there was a certain sense back then. Back then, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was sort of long ago. Regardless, whatever. I think that there was like a desire for some sort of unity and escapism, and those are, of course, I think the easy answers. But I also think that this was a time when, like, and I say this with as much affection as I can muster, I feel like nerd culture was not the monoculture yet. Mm, So I think that there was still this sort of interest from fans of the book to see this movie and to see could, you know, could what Peter Jackson imagined sync up with what they had imagined uh, and it had been a long time since someone had like taken a stab at this material, right? So I think that there was just an overall interest from fans who wanted to see what it could be like, and just a general desire from some sort of populist escapism because of what the country was going through at the time. Maybe both of those are easy answers, but I think, you know, we weren't where we are now like a decade into superhero dominance where like these things come out every two or three months and there's not as much sustained interest anymore. It feels like 
there was some other different kind of collective appeal happening back then. There was more novelty to these kind of these kind of things. And also, I think it was a moment of tech, you know, I kind of suggested this before, but it's like a moment when technology kind of caught up with the the possibilities of, of the technology kind of opened up, you know, the yeah. type type of stories you could tell. I mean, yeah. Harry Potter um, I mean, say what you will about that first movie as definitely has some, some downsides to it, but you know, it is also not as well, I would say, but it, but it does mix, uh, practical and digital effects. Uh, I think sure. got, the series got better at that as it went along. Uh, and it's also, you know, another faithful adaptation that, that kind of you know, very great production design really kind of creates this, this world in a way that, that is the world of the page, but also brings the, some, the designers, uh, eye to it. So, you know, I, th- I think it, in, and it's only possible because the technology was there to make that movie at, at the time. This is a better movie. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but I, but I think some of those same kind of currents and in, in movie making uh, carry both along. And I mean, I'm a little re- reluctant to say this, but since you brought Harry Potter up, like I, I think we can't really overlook the role that Harry Potter's popularity may have mm. played in bringing a new generation to oh, yeah. these stories. And you know, mm-hmm. it's just the the knowledge that you know these books are a a precursor to Harry Potter Potter and they're not like that similar but there's certainly some common elements you know and i feel like if you are a young person and Harry Potter is sort of your entry into fantasy and it's this massive cultural thing and then there's this other thing that you know is part of the path that led us to Harry Potter and it's like okay yeah why why wouldn't i check that out you know i think it it maybe like i think Harry Potter maybe like opened up some people to the fantasy genre and these films just like hit at the exact right time to take advantage of that openness. It opened the same year, both opened the same year I moved to Chicago. And I, and in the sort of pre-smartphone era, I feel like there were just sort of phases of books everyone was reading on the train on my mm-hmm. way to work. And this is very much mm-hmm. the, if you, if, if the, if the person next to me wasn't reading Harry Potter, they were reading Lord of the Rings. It was, yeah, you know, I think the final phase before smartphones totally took over was the, the girl with the dragon tattoo era. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of missed that. I kind of missed that being a way to, to gauge what's, uh, what's being read as, you know. I feel like it was 50 shades. Maybe. Cause I yeah. remember like, I remember commuting at the time and there would be numerous people on the bus reading it. And I'd be like in public. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was saying. Like, people like they're showing the cover. They're like letting people look at, like, yes. look at the cover. It made me scandalized every time. <laughs> <laughs> this film, like the book, is divided into three sections. It's almost two. I mean, there's, this movie could have been so many different permutations. I think uh, Miramax really wanted like a one film version of Lord of the Rings. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And at one point, there's going to be a two film version and then a two film, a Hobbit, and then two films of Lord of the Rings. I think it worked out. I think breaking it into the three books as they were published uh, really works. But I was wondering, does this film work as a film on its own or is it, you know, is it really ultimately like the book? Is it, is it, is it one big film? I mean, it's one big film, yeah. right? I mean, it's effective. Like, I don't feel diminished when I end it, but it ends on, <laughs> yeah. like, the introduction of the next phase of each journey. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So... 
I and I have watched all three of them together enough times to know, like, oh no, it's fourteen hours. Wait, enough times, just... like more than once, you watched all <laughs> yes! three. Of them? Oh, there's yes! a reason we asked Roxanne to come <laughs> yes! on this episode, you guys. <laughs> all three extended editions in one day is just like the best thing that you could do wow. with your time. But yeah, I mean, I think it. I think it works for this. I don't think it worked for The Hobbit. Like, I think maybe it gave Peter Jackson unnecessary <laughs> confidence yeah. to think that the hobbit could be three movies but yeah i definitely see the trilogy as like one contained unit each film within it is effective but they require each other absolutely agree i, I would say though it is satisfying where you're left here at uh, the moment that you're left with because because you're it really gives you this wonderful moment uh between um uh frodo and uh samwise Samwise? He's mm-hmm. calm Sam. Mm-hmm. His friends call him Sam. Okay. Um, it, gives you, it, it, it gives you this wonderful moment with uh, Frodo and, and, and Sam that kind of, you know, gets you prepared, you know, gives, gives you the, the, this kind of raises the stakes emotionally, takes you to a new place. You know, you're kind of ent- entering into a new part of this world. You're, get, you're, you're getting a, your first view of Mordor and you're just anticipating what's to come and that's that's the best you can do i mean you, you know and, I, and I, i'm you know if the choice is between doing that or trying to condense all of that material into one movie i mean the choice is pretty obvious i'd much rather be have a have you know a part one that's gonna that's gonna be resolved you know where everything's gonna be resolved over the course of nine hours rather than squeezed into three so it, it certainly works well for me it's interesting to me to hear you call it satisfying though scott because like well i, well, I agree it works like fellowship ends on a down note you know it's a uh, yeah. you our, our band of fellows is broken up you know uh and they're in boromir died we didn't even talk about boromir um or, or sean i'm sorry Bean. sean i'm sorry sean uh, <laughs> i apologize well, well, yeah no i, I guess it, i guess it's a, it's um a down note but think about think about the best Star Wars movie probably exactly Empire yeah. Strikes Back ends on a down note too. So this it's like kind of the um, first Star Wars and Empire rolled into one. <laughs> but also, you do have like Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas like being like, "Let's go yeah. hunt some orc." Yeah, you know, like you do still have like a kick-ass sort of moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Boromir like died doing what he loved, which was like sort of being a jackass and. <laughs> kicking ass so he's uh, fine he died Sorry, doing uh, what he loved terrorizing yeah. hobbits no i mean <laughs> no i know see, isn't, isn't the best thing about boromir that like he genuinely cares for mary and pippin yeah. and like he does apologize to frodo uh genevieve i wish you hadn't brought it up now i'm sad <laughs> <laughs> well that's an appropriate oh. note to end this on uh, yeah, right? one, one, yeah. one last one last shout out is, is howard shore because like oh, howard shore is like, i knew it was like the guy who did like mm-hmm. really yeah, like unusual like emotional but emotionally opaque scores for david cronenberg movies and here he is in just full like heroic mode and just just kills yeah. it kills it the scores unreal like this yep. it, it, it's so important to the movie like when you have a score that's this memorable and this has gives you different so many important beats too i mean the main theme is got so much kind of emotion and sweep to it but then but then you know he'll hit you with some some good sort of action music and uh, yeah it is an incredible incredible score the well, chanting and the drums in casa doom is mm. exceptional 
Well, yeah. we could go so on much, talking about yeah. drums and chanting and, 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 and music and, and all the performances Boromir. we didn't even, even mention. Like Ian Holm. Ian Holm's so good. Guys, let's talk about Ian Holm for 20 minutes. No. <laughs> wait, anyway. wait, wait, Gandalf. Gandalf died, guys. Do we don't want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, Genevieve. I know. <laughs> you know, come on. Wait, to, uh, well, I, I, so I just want to know real quick. Did anyone at the time not know that that was? I didn't. You didn't? Oh, wow. Okay. No, because like I had seen Bakshi, but it was like fourth grade. Like I had no like real memory of it after watching it. So I do remember harassing my brother and being like, what happened? <laughs> and uh, and he refused to tell me. So good for him. He yeah. let me experience it for myself. Good for him. Well, on that note, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion about Roxana's brother and spoilers <laughs> <He's> <laughs> and, guy. and all this stuff. Uh, and anything else in the world of film, not even Hobbit related, email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. If you want to share any responses with us and other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback we've already received. Now it's time for feedback. We're still sorting through a lot of feedback we got for Nope, a a, a movie that that raises more questions than answers, but it's fun fun to think about. Uh, let's tackle a couple of them. Genevieve, can you share the first one? Sure. Bennett writes, I was interested in hearing your different feelings on the scene with Gordy as either an interesting, thematically rich exploration or as a distracting intellectual exercise that does not serve the story at all. I personally really enjoyed talking about the scene with my friends after the movie as we tried connecting the dots with different theories, but I fully understand why a primarily thematic detour didn't work for Tasha and Genevieve. After listening to your discussion, I tried thinking of some other examples of this happening in other movies, and I thought of the Mike Yanagita character in Fargo and the Golden Watch monologue in Pulp Fiction. I'm curious if you feel the same way about these diversions, or if there are distinguishing factors that make those work more for you. I mean, I think a distinguishing factor for both of those is that they are single scene things and yeah. the Gordy stuff in Nope is really weaved throughout it in a way that in my opinion makes you think it is going to pay off in a way that, that it never does but I already kind of said my piece on that so I will uh, open the floor to others to answer Bennett's question. Hmm. I don't know if I can answer it. It's been, I haven't seen Nope in a really long time, and there's a lot of stuff going on in that movie. Um, I, all I can say is I really, it's just I, I liked it and wanted to think about it more. I mean, Nope is a movie that I think needs more than one one viewing. It is it is full of is a film that is full of stuff. That has been a, something that's been happening with with Peels movies. Each one each one I think has been more dense, has been more difficult to unpack, uh, has been more filled with eccentric little pieces and uh, you know challenges i guess to to have you put those pieces together and and um and so i i like the exercise that um bennett describes in his letter of of you know getting together with friends and floating different theories i mean you know without getting again without being able to tell to say definitively what i think in terms of how the gordy stuff really fits into everything else I like the exercise and I like a movie. I like movies that, that prompt to think through odd elements like that because you know, it's something like the, the Mike Yanagita scene in, in Fargo. I mean, that that's a standalone scene. And it, when you see, and when you see it the first time you do, th it does stand out as being the one scene that isn't necessarily driving the plot forward because it is a very strong, muscular pulp narrative that has this scene that stands out in a very deliberate way. But you watch that movie 
multiple times as, as I have, and then you, you then you really start to see, hey, wait a minute, there's kind of there's something in Marge's decision making that is affected by that encounter with Mike Yanagiri. There's something in Marge's desires as a married person, as a woman, of some uh, to the, the way that she approaches that 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 moment too. All that comes with time, and so my I guess my my thought is that I feel like it fits. I just can't say why. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I guess as the person who was probably least enamored with that element of Nope when when we discussed it, I will readily acknowledge that I would probably appreciate it more on a second viewing and just discussions I've heard about it since that viewing. We recorded that like less than 24 hours after I saw it. So those are still like very fresh reactions. And some of the theories or explanations I've heard about the Gordy stuff since then have been like, oh yeah, like like that's really cool. And I it's not that like I don't want that kind of element in my movie. My issue at the time was how hard I perceived the film to be hammering on this thing that it didn't pay off at the time. And I found it very distracting and it took me out of sort of the rhythm of the film to kind of make me do that exercise of what does this mean? What, you know, what, what, what's the connection here? And it, it, like I said, it's, it's, I found it distracting revisiting it, you know, knowing the full lay of the landscape of, of, of the film, I would probably find it more enticing in that respect. But, you know, on a first viewing it, I, it's a lot. I made it clear it didn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I still don't believe thing- the shoe landed that way. Just on accident oh that was so cool uh, the shoe is the best part genevieve <laughs> you wrote about the shoe didn't you roxanne yes i love the shoe i love the shoe i think it's great i mean the other thing too is that uh, my understanding is that the gordy stuff was way more built out and they cut down a lot of it mm. because there's a lot of stuff in the trailers that connects to the gordy storyline that did not make it into the final cut oh, really i don't check yeah. that out again yeah, so like I I wonder if we ever do get a director's cut because I think the stuff with Gordy there's some element of like the show having a stalker and there being someone who uh, like visits the set when the tragedy happens and is actually the person who kills Gordy. So I think there's like also sort of like an obsession hmm. subplot to that subplot that we did not get that maybe would have better contextualized jupe's reaction Mm -hmm. to the gordy stuff and put it sort of in a different frame to connect with the main storyline we've got another nope question uh it's an elusive film that opens itself up to a lot of different readings as we've kind of proving now uh scott you've got a letter focusing on one element of the film can you read that one for me uh sure uh corin writes was I looking too hard for racial commentary in every aspect of Nope? Maybe, but I've been sincerely surprised not to see any reviews I've read mention the significance of a black man having to lower his gaze to avoid violent attack. Each time I saw Daniel Kaluuya adopt this more submissive demeanor, I felt a little sick inside, perhaps more so because just before Nope, I'd seen a trailer for Till, in which Emmett Till's mother warns the doomed young man to quote-unquote make himself small. I also think it's worth noting that the movie's very premise is that no one will believe a horror has occurred unless someone produces unimpeachable video evidence. I love Nope on multiple levels, but seeing it as a metaphor for America's horrifying history of racial violence definitely contributed to how thoroughly shook I felt walking out of the theater. I'm sure y'all will let me know if I'm just being an overly zealous liberal try-hard white lady. <laughs> love the show. Uh, 
Uh, that's a really good letter, and I l- really love this second part of it. This this idea of um, no one will believe a horror has occurred unless someone produces unimpeachable video evidence. That is that that is not something I thought about, which seems it seems like a really really great insight into the movie. Yeah, same. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. You have something better to say than I do. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I doubt that. All I was going to say is that yeah, I mean, I think that like just the the obsessive quest for i mean obsession comes up like every time i talk about this movie so forgive me for being repetitive but i feel like the oprah shot is that right it's the sense of like this one perfect thing that will convince everyone that what you saw was real and i think that it serves a good counter with what the movie is saying about like cinema overall being this made up place where we find truth. So I think it's tackling both aspects of like what convinces you and why does it convince you and how can you suspend disbelief for one medium, but not the other. And I will say, I think that Robert Daniels and Soraya Nadia McDonald, I thought that they did write about the first part of that question. I could be wrong. But I think there was some uh, discussion of OJ's reaction to the alien and how that had different layers of meaning. Could be. It's a lot, a lot of writing going on around this film, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, give us something to chew on. I mean, it's like, that was like, <laughs> mm-hmm. nope was like, a, nope was like something to like dig into. There wasn't, not, wasn't a whole lot. Well, just there wasn't a whole lot of movies to watch this summer, but let alone, you know, a movie that was going to kind of have a lot of stuff and maybe not all fit together like it's supposed to but uh there's something being attempted and something worth exploring and theorizing about which is which is a a very positive thing well speaking of theories we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and theories and the recommendations and all kinds of other things uh if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll go back to Middle Earth and back in time to its second age. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, if you adopt a pseudonym to hide out from Black Writers, Make sure your dopey friends stick to the script. Yo, Frodo, what you doing wearing the ring? All powerful jewelry, is that your new thing? I know it's hard when you're little more than three foot four, your little ass so close to the floor. Trying to lead the fellows to the gate of Mordor. The fellowship, yeah, the fellowship. But don't rap about bitches and hoes, I'll rap about witches and trolls, cause I'm passing on the words of the elven king, who is them to all. Frodo, don't, don't wear the ring. Frodo, don't wear the ring. The magical link blade. You'll never be the lord of the ring.